Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. We are traveling down under this week to meet a very interesting gentleman. His name is Dr. Rod Gutierrez. He's an Australian medical doctor, psychologist, and business leader. He's internationally well-regarded in several fields, such as risk and safety, cultural transformation, organizational, and leadership development. He's also got lots of other projects on the go that we're going to talk about. So Dr. Rod, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I realized during my my research and, and doing my due diligence for the interview that you and I have two things in common. We both were rehab counselors in our early, early days of our career. And I have also worked for the Commonwealth of Australia. So I thought that was some unique research to find out about you. Indeed, some very um, significant intersections there in, in our paths. <clears throat> not, not very many rehabilitation counselors about. Absolutely. So I'm looking at all of your accomplishments and education and areas of expertise. And I am sure that you are very busy since the onset of COVID-19, which was around March 11th. And my first question is, how do you feel COVID-19 is shining a light on leadership? Look, I think COVID-19 has provided leaders an opportunity, um, a once-in-a-lifetime, a, a once-in-a-generation opportunity to, to really change things about, change things about themselves, uh, about how we do things, but also change the world a little bit. Um, I think COVID-19, you know, it, it's a little bit of a preamble or, or, or an introduction of what can happen if, if we don't change our ways and if we don't heed the warnings about, you know, um, the environment and about um, social um, issues and healthcare all around the world. So I think um, COVID-19 provides a, a fantastic backdrop and, a, a, and enforces us to really think about um, where it is that we're heading and why. Um, and, and leaders need to then step up to that uh, opportunity. Um, and I say it forces us because many, many organizations, many leaders have kind of, um, I guess, uh, Bill lulled into a sense of, of complacency. Um, when, when, when you are in a, um, when, when, when things are going well and it's fair weather sailing, you know, that doesn't make you a great leader. But um, when things are rough and uh, everything is changing around you and in fact drastically changing to the point where it's unprecedented, um, these, these are the situations that allow leaders to emerge. I, I think leaders emerge from things that, rather than create themselves. Um, it, it gives the conditions and the context in which people can actually grow and, um, and become who they really need to be. 
Well, I, I fully agree with you and I, I share the executive coaching space with you and, and I love what you said because we have nothing to compare this to. I mean, if we looked at the last pandemic, it was well over a hundred years ago and I know a lot of the leaders and I'm sure you've been hearing this for the last five months as well is they have to step up and there is no more, there's zero room for complacency. Now, I know through the work that you've done that you have designed strategies and implemented programs to really undertake results from driven business improvement. And I love that you address people and we'll put people in quotes, challenges that are associated with business transformation. So my question for you, Dr. Rod, is why don't people like to follow rules? <laughs> um, I, I've, uh, I've been trying to answer these questions for, for almost 30 years. <laughs> and um, I think it's got to do with the fact that um, we firstly do not like uh, when things change. We, we like our environment to be, um, to be constant and to be predictable. And, and that gives us comfort but then it gives us a sense of, of, of well-being. Um, rules uh, kind of try to, to manage and to, um, you know, mould the way in which we do things. And often the way that we, uh, we, people want us to do things are contradictory to the way that we would like to do them. And so there is a, a generic kind of uh, inherent inbuilt, wired, hardwired sense of um, buckle, bucking against rules that is, is, is quite well established. And um, the way we've tried to kind of impose rules on people tends to be kind of the good old fashioned behaviorist approach, which is imposing um, consequences uh, if, you, if you do the right thing versus you do the wrong thing. And so we reward people for doing the right thing and, and we sort of not reward people, perhaps punish them if, if we don't, if they don't. And that kind of is the cornerstone of a lot of the work that, that has been done in HR. And, and unfortunately, we know that consequence management is one way to shift behavior to, towards people, being, people following rules. Um, but it's also not the only way. And, and it's a very... Um, it is difficult to, to consistently shape people's behavior through consequence management over time because you need to continually provide consequences. And um, so in, in this day and age, you know, we need, um, we have less and less supervisors in, in the, in the empl employment situations in the workplace. And so the provision of consequences to employees is kind of difficult to manage. And so we really need to move towards a much more, um, cognitive way of looking at things and, and values driven values based approach where people kind of do the right thing because they want to rather because they have to and, and that of course is is a, 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 some of the impotence of, of my work which is how do we shift people from um, having to do things to wanting to do things um, because they because they truly have an inherent motivation to do so without obviously um, you know, manipulating anybody. It, it's really about personal choices. It's about um, values and beliefs and, and kind of uh, and not imposing, but asking and inviting people to, um, to behave in a way that's consistent with those rules. So rules aren't bad. They, they, they are necessary. Um, it's, it's the way in which we engage people with them that, that, um, that really is um, 
is important. And, and through COVID, you know, we've seen, a, at least here in Australia, we've seen a range of kind of uh, early draconian uh, rules imposed on people. And, and you can see what happens when, when rules are imposed versus um, people invited to, to participate in, 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 in activities that are for our own good. You know, they, they, uh, they tend not to follow along and create more problems. And it's almost a full circle moment as I listen to you explain that. It takes me back to university learning the, the ABCs of behavior. But it makes me think back to my rehab counselor days. And I used to be a disability case manager and helping those people on short-term disability claims transition and really implement a successful return to work. And I always found that with consequence management, the best skill that you could bring forward as a rehab counselor was the attentive listening and really stepping into that person's world and, and offering them that intrinsic validation piece so that they felt valued and understood. And it's just neat to hear that we're talking about it now in the middle of a pandemic. So it's kind of a full circle moment from a career perspective. Yes, and, and you know, it, it just highlights how important it is. If, if you want to um, get anywhere with people, you've got to bring them along with you rather than uh, get them all against you. Absolutely. Now, I'm sure you've been very busy with COVID-19, as you said at the start of the interview. What is one good strategy that businesses can have to really look at an integrative holistic approach to transition back from COVID-19. And I realize it's varied depending on country and each country's leadership is, is doing something different, but I just thought maybe you could share with us uh, uh, an overview of one good strategy that organizations are looking at. Yeah, look, I, I think the, the, the best thing I can say in this space is that I've been helping organizations truly understand strategy itself and um and you know strategy is just another word for choices and often often organizations are really good at kind of uh, implementing things and getting things done um but often their strategy which is the choices that they've made in relation to uh, the the things that they want to achieve as an organization um, becomes disconnected or uncoupled from the activities and from the um, from the execution and and so the the, the biggest piece of work that I've been doing uh, with with my clients and, and, and organizations is around really redefining strategy uh, and and thinking about what is the current scope of um, of change out there what the market is doing um, what are the kind of uh, macroeconomic trends that are occurring and then put that against our internal um, um, internal um, abilities to react to that, to, to really think about what our internal resources are in responding to the external environment. And then you get kind of this, this matrix of external versus internal. And that kind of leads you towards a set of choices that you can make about how you're going to respond. And the biggest question, I guess, in this space is, um, we are going to really need to be different in the future. And so a lot of our strategies in the past have been about becoming better. They've been about improvement. They've been about incrementalism. 
And frankly, um, organizations will not survive unless they become different. And so there is a sense here about where is the balance between better and different. And so better is about incremental change over time and different is about step change. And that step change has to happen much quicker than, than the incremental change. And so then therein lie the choices and therein lies the strategy. So the strategy here really is around what is the balance for an organization in this context of COVID to let go of the things that are no longer going to be viable in the future and to really look at those bright spots and those opportunity areas that are brought about by the new, by the new world order, if you like. And then really thinking about what do we make better? What do we improve? And how will we be different? And if organizations do that, then they are able to really redefine their strategic intent and imperatives and then can align their activities and their executions in a much more meaningful way. And I know that it sounds kind of simplistic, this idea of better versus different. But um, in, in, in reality, we've had amazing results with, um, with organizations really taking the time. And that's, that's another, I guess, uh, piece of advice. This is the time to take time. Um, this is the time to think deeply and to reflect about what's made you great in the past and to kind of let go of that a bit and think about what will make us great in the future. And the past and the future are not connected in, in, in a significant way like we have seen in the past. The past and the future are different. The past have, have, have parted, if you like. And so it's about making the choices as to how we walk through this and how we um, get there and how, who we choose to bring with us. That's the, um, the, the best that I can put in, in words. The, um, well, I like what you said. It sounds very common. And I often say that common sense doesn't mean that it's common practice. And I also love that strategy is another word for choice. That's very powerful. Now, what led you to pursue your PhD in public health and safety? And I wanted to find uh, where your curiosity, I know that you are a vivid visionary, I know that you're energetic, I know that you're passionate. Where did that interest come to pursue your PhD in public health and safety? Was there something in your life or was it an experience or did you have a mentor? Look, I, I, was, um, I was a clinical psychologist for many years and uh, in my clinical practice, I, I, I used to see you know, anywhere between eight and 10 people a day in, in, in that setting. And, you know, out of everybody who came in, um, maybe about 40% of everybody who came in had a significant issue with, with their work and their employment. And um, this led me to start wondering about what is it about work that makes people sick? What is it about work that makes people um, unwell, mentally um, and psychologically. And um, so after, after spending a long time uh, working in that environment, I decided I'd go and find out the answer. And the easy way to do that was to kind of do a large scale study into, into mental health at work, you know, looking at um, from an epidemiological point of view and really finding out what are the causes of mental illness in the workplace. And um, 
again, uh, often you go and do a, a big study and, and, and what comes out of it are things that, that seemingly are very simple answers. And, and the, the, the simple answer to the, the question why um, do people become unwell at work is, is other people. <laughs> um, so we, we tend to, um, uh, you know, we, uh, the, the, the theories of stress at work tend to be around, you know, people have, have too much to do, uh, not enough time, com competing demands, um, and, and, you know, all of these sort of job-related um, factors. And I thought that somewhere in there would lie the answer. But when we looked into the actual data, what we found is that conflict in the workplace was the triggering factor that led to people becoming unwell particularly when that conflict was interpreted by the person, um, for, by the employee or the worker, as being very personal and being uh, negative against them. And that kind of set people off in a, in a, uh, in a particular trajectory that, that uh, often led to things like anxiety and depression and, and other things. So, you know, the, 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 the existence of conflict in the workplace um, is, is something to, to really be mindful of um, because of two things. One is conflict is actually a very positive thing in the right context. So we need conflict in the workplace. Um, that's where ideas come from. That's where um, innovation can come, come out of. But when conflict becomes toxic, um, that's when uh, we can find ourselves with people becoming disengaged and... and um, and developing mental health issues. And after I did my PhD in, in, in sort of this area of, of psychological health and, and safety, I, I became more and more interested in, in, in safety as a, as, a, as a topic and decided to, um, to, to look for the largest kind of organization that I could that kind of really looked into safety and that was DuPont. And I spent um, six or seven years um, at, at DuPont in, in um, in the safety space and consulting space and, and, um, and the change and transformation space there, um, kind of putting into practice some of the things that I had learned uh, through the PhD. Well, I find it so fascinating how you just explained that. And that is the biggest reason that I no longer do disability case management because I I would hear the same thing with people being off on short-term disability claims, conflict at work, toxic culture, and some of these people moved to long-term disability claims. Some of them became palliative and I lost them. And I thought mm -hmm. I need to get on the other side of the curve and be a preventionist. And we need to talk about what it looks like to work your way up the corporate ladder, but do it holistically, integratively, and always opening to learn, look at other leadership styles. And like you said, conflict does not have to be a bad thing. So really interesting space that your work has taken you. And uh, you're such an asset to many companies around the globe with the work that you've done. And just lastly, I want to talk about consequence, consequence management. And I know that that's measures to take to protect public health and safety. So how did you feel at the start of COVID-19 with all of your consulting experience and schooling and just was this kind of something you were prepared for and felt that you're now going to put all of your knowledge and schooling and experience in place because we were at the onset of a pandemic? 
Yeah, look, at the beginning of this, I, um, I, was, I was meant to be doing um, my internship, my medical internship in, in Samoa. I, um, I'm a medical doctor who, who's trained in the Pacific Islands. Um, I have an interest in, in tropical medicine and, and um, working in, in medical settings with low resources. And um, so we, we had uh, set up a whole year to kind of be traveling to Samoa and um, and spending you know chunks of time of eight weeks at a time and then coming back and and forth for for this year and next year, and so we we did one of those um, uh, eight week stints uh, in early, in the early part of the year, then we came back and we were due to leave uh, and return to Samoa and uh, and then the the government of Samoa um, closed their their borders and then Australia stopped running flights so it was it became very clear very quickly that this was very um impactful and that and that the plans that we had for this year would be totally um, blown out of the water and i had no idea then that i would find myself um kind of in the very middle of of this complex nexus of public health um safety consulting and strategy um, which are kind of three areas of, of that are very dear to my heart, but that I that had never kind of converged in any meaningful way. And so, um, COVID for me meant being able to use in a more holistic way a set of skills that I had, but also being able to provide um, uh, advice and assistance um, to organisations and governments around you know how what's the best way to manage this and. And, you know, if we are going to, um, you know, some, put some rules around um, how, how to manage, then what is the best way to do that? And also, you know, what, what, what is likely to happen? Because, you know, the, the, this, uh, the idea that, um, that the virus is, is, isn't going to go anywhere. So this is a longer term problem. And, uh, and uh, at least here in Australia, we kind of, um, we did really well at flattening the curve, but um, we haven't done well at getting rid of the virus because the virus is still here. And so there's a sense of complacency coming back in now. And, um, and there's a sense of, well, you know, but haven't we done that already? And, and the fact is that this is going to be a longer term thing and we need to have a consistent and sustained approach to be able to, um, to manage the, the social impacts and the social um, distancing that, that needs to happen. But that comes, of course, with a plethora of issues, social issues around, um, you know, returning people back to work, the, the, the balance between public transport and staying at home. Um, you know, for many, uh, being being at home is not a is not a, a um, it's not a great place. Um, for, for many people, home is a place of um, violence and a place of, of, of um, anger. And so, you know, it's not a sanctuary for everybody to be at home. And so managing these things becomes really difficult. Um, but at the same time, we have to make efforts to ensure that, that the spread of a virus is, is contained as much as we can. So there's, there's so many competing demands in this that, um, that finding a balance is difficult. And that's where I'm, I'm trying to, um, to add value to the, to the conversation and to the um, dialogue. The, the cliche, you know, things happen for a reason definitely is uh, following suit with your, your skills and in, in your practice right now. So as much as I'm sad that you're not doing your, your medical internship, I think uh, you're in the right place and, and you're the right person to be leading this, especially for the Commonwealth of Australia. 
Now, I want to finish uh, the interview with my Fab Four. And just these are just four fun questions, Rod, and whatever's on the top of your head. From what age did you realize you were a vivid visionary? <laughs> I don't know about being a vivid visionary, but I remember wanting to be a doctor uh, from the age of about five. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and then it, it took me a long, long time to get there, but I, I eventually did. Well, I know that you like concepts and ideas and ways of thinking. So to me, that's the definition of a vivid visionary. So age yes. five, that's amazing. What three core leadership skills do you possess that makes you a heart-centered leader? Look, I think... Um, I believe I I have the ability to uh, paint a, a vision and visualize a future that no one lived. I think that's that's number one. Um, I think I'm I've become uh, better at being able to bring people with me. I think that's been a journey. And finally, I think uh, sheer uh, stubbornness that um, you know building something from where there is nothing is possible. And, and there's another example of a vivid visionary. <laughs> what imperfection do you feel has added to your leadership? Um, probably my lack of ability to remain focused. I'm incredibly curious. And I like to, I'm the kind of person who cannot sit with not knowing the answer to something once it comes into my mind. Um, it's, an it's an imperfection because it's difficult to focus on anything for too long. Um, but it also makes you someone who is able to have lots of different ideas and, and hold ideas in your head that, um, uh, in an important way. And my last question is, where is your favorite place on earth to visit and why? My favorite place, um, my favorite place at the moment is our home in the Macedon Ranges in Victoria. It is a, a magical place uh, in the middle of the mountains in Victoria. It's got the perfect weather and it happens to be where home is. And um, I think that's, uh, that's really lucky for me to be able to live in a, in a place that I love. Well, Dr. Rod, I want to thank you for your insight and expertise and spending time with me today on the Imperfect Podcast. I like to end my podcast with my favorite five things. Follow your heart, have passion, do your best, know your truth, and always be in love with the journey. This is Deb Crow. Thank you for joining me once again on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast.